0: Actions seem to follow feeling, but really, actions and feeling go together, and by regulating the action, which is under the more direct control of the will, we can indirectly regulate the feeling, which is not. Thus, the sovereign, voluntary path to cheerfulness, if our cheerfulness is lost, is to sit up cheerfully and act and speak as if cheerfulness were already there. This is a quote by William James, who was a philosopher and psychologist of the mid-to-late 1800s. Welcome to the Rosk Podcast, episode 18, Act As If. Now, before we get into the podcast, the typical housekeeping, I do want to remind you, if you haven't already, check out the website and the blog at www.rosc.life, R-O-S-C.life. It's linked in the description below. Head over there to check out the written version or written counterpiece to this podcast and all the podcasts that we put out and also take a look at the sign up page where you can sign up for our newsletter. The newsletter is once a week, it's spam free, and it's a condensed three bullet point version of what we talk about in the blog posts and the podcasts. The idea being if you don't have the time or don't want to delve into all of the philosophy and the the thought process behind the actions you can take, at the very least you can have three implementable actions that you can take to work, take to your life and put into practice to be able to start seeing the change similar to what we're talking about right now, because the action leads to the identity far more than the identity ends up leading into action. The other benefit of signing up for the newsletter is having direct access to me. If I can be of any help and having direct access in the future to your fellow community members, your fellow co-leaders, and also to be Kept up to date and informed on the projects that are upcoming. The most upcoming project is our cardiac arrest management app, which is going to potentially change the way we run cardiac arrests, document cardiac arrests, and share information about cardiac arrests. If you're signed up for the newsletter, you will be part of our beta testing team. You'll have the opportunity to see the app from its initial beta release to its final product. And you may actually have the ability to give input and insight into how to make it better from now till future iterations. The other projects that we're working on are educational project, communal projects that bring us together under the code of ethics that we're trying to implement in ourselves and be able to create an e-learning community for people to share interactions, share clinical experiences, share whatever it might be in the interest of creating co-authorship, co-creation, peer coaching, peer recognition, and potentially creating an alternative culture to what exists now. All of that and more is to come sign up for the newsletter, www.rosc.life. You're welcome to send in questions, send in feedback, send in thoughts, whatever you'd like. But we would love to have your support. Now, onto the podcast. So I don't understand how certain practitioners do it. They walk into a room, they have they're just cool, calm, and collected, they know what first step to take and what next step to take. It comes straight out of their mouth, everything moves smoothly, and it's like they belong there. Meanwhile, I'm in the room and I can't even get the first thought out. And by the time I get the first thought out, the patient's already stabilized or going a CAT scan or like so many actions have been taken this type of person who walks into that room. You can't help, but think that maybe they're just better at it because they belong here. Maybe they love it more than I do. Maybe they just don't get as easily frustrated. And this has been a thought in my mind for, as of the time of this recording, it's been in my mind for like nine years since I started practicing. And I can't seem to understand how to develop that level of confidence to be able to think and make the action. And the worst part is when I'm in a situation like that, the other person makes a decision and I seconds later or minutes later, I'm like, I knew that I thought of that. I would have thought of that if I had the time. But then I wonder to myself, maybe I don't have the luxury of time and that person can understand the situation better and act faster. Why? So in an interest to figure out how to remove the clutter that comes into my mind when I enter a situation where everything is chaotic or at least seemingly chaotic, I decided I needed to figure out a way to get rid of that clutter and be able to think more clearly. Maybe not perfectly clearly, but at least more clearly. The first thought that actually came to my mind, this is a few years back, actually gave me a lot of solace, and that is that if a patient doesn't give you 10 seconds to think before they crash or go into a rest, then you didn't have the ability to make a difference in that 10 seconds. Like you will always have at least a moment to think about some action. And if you don't have a brief moment to be able to make a decision like that, nothing you could have done in that period of time would have helped. That and understanding what adrenaline ends up doing to your perception of time combined allowed me to relax a little bit because one of the things that I noticed that happens with analysis paralysis is letting all of it come at you, but also getting overwhelmed and causing yourself not to be able to understand time and space in that moment. So that was the first step. The second step that I decided to take was exactly that to take a step. So I remember the first time I decided in a crashing situation in a patient who seems to be in an extremis and that is overwhelming the room. That sensation is making everyone frantic and start to talk a little bit more loudly and their actions become a little bit less smooth. I decided to do one thing. I decided to take my hand and put it on the patient's ankle. And I noticed things sort of linearized immediately. It's almost like everything slowed down. It's almost like all the clutter in my mind started to try and line up. So the next thing I did after touching the patient's ankle, because I now got some information, I got the information that this patient's ankle is warm. And that tells me they're perfusing. They probably have a good amount of volume. They probably have good peripheral circulation. So let me check the next step. I checked a peripheral pulse. I felt a peripheral pulse and it was normal. It was decent. This started to give me some information. Now it's not concrete, right? I'm not going to feel a pulse and say, this patient's blood pressure is perfect. I don't even need to check a blood pressure, but what it does put in my mind is blood pressure and heart rate. And that leads me to the next point. Let me look at the monitor. Okay. We need to get the patient on the monitor. These things that we know are the ABCs, right? You get your vital signs, you get your finger stick and all this stuff, but let's face it, we're human and these things fall out of our minds sometimes. Even when we've done it hundreds of times, the hundred and first time we might forget to check the heart rate or forget to think about the heart rate. What I felt ended up happening was each piece of information allowed me to think of the next piece of information and it changed my focus. The clutter was still there on the outside, but I allowed myself a brief moment of tunnel vision and asked myself one question, which gave me a thought to another question that happens in the creative space. It happens in all different types of spaces. You start asking the question and the ball starts rolling. So for that brief moment, I felt a bit of clarity. And then the clutter came back in. But this time when the clutter came back, first of all, it gave me a little bit of self-credibility that I made a step forward, right? For a brief moment, I felt a bit of control. But the second thing that it did for me is the clutter came back with some context now. It gave me a direction, and it also put into action the first thing I mentioned, which is if a patient doesn't give you a moment to think, you never had the opportunity to save them from what's happening. The indirect presence of that thought gave me the chance to take a deep breath, and it gave me the chance to say to myself, okay, you have some level of information. What action can you take at this point that isn't hyper-focused to one thing on your differential, but might help a number of things and still continue to give you information. That question allows itself to come up to the surface. And then at that point, even if the clutter comes back and you get confused again, you can still take a deep breath and lean back on the information you've gleaned. And each time you get a little bit more information. But the other thing is, like I said a little bit ago, you build the self-credibility. When you build self-credibility, you build self-confidence and you trust yourself in that moment. And you can take a deep breath and you can think a little bit more clearly. You can speak at a lower volume more intently. And then the room starts to change because the people around you, the team around you will respond to the tone of the leader of that room. I'll give you another really interesting example. This is more fresh in my mind because it, it really culminated a lot of the theoretical information I had gained. And this was a trauma case it's a little bit descriptive and a little bit gruesome, but hopefully you can handle it. There's a 30 year old guy who had come in, was intoxicated and got hit by a car. He got hit by a car hard enough that his head hit the windshield and part of his scalp was still in the windshield. And so he came in and he was a little bit groggy. He was a little bit confused and he was intoxicated, but this was different from just being intoxicated. He came in with a heart rate around 110 and his blood pressure was normal. As we were stabilizing him, and the trauma team was evaluating him, and I'm taking a look at his vital signs, I'm a little bit overwhelmed in that moment. And I'm thinking about all these different things. He's got head trauma, and th- there might be something going with his chest, and like all, all these people are around him, and, and I'm hearing all this information going back and forth, right? So I decided to put my hand on his ankle. Now, I put my hand on his ankle not thinking about why I would put my hand on someone's ankle. And that's the beauty of what I'm talking about. I put my hand on his ankle and I was like, that's not cold, but it's not warm. And that sounds very vague, but here's the thing. It was a warm spring day. It wasn't cold outside. His ankle did not feel as warm as I would expect it to for a 30-year-old guy with a normal blood pressure. And I checked his peripheral pulse and it was... It was there, but that led me to think about, wait a minute, this guy is a little bit cool. This is the trauma patient. And there's three things that I would think about that would give me an idea of badness for this patient. Here's a little clinical pearl. The three things that I worry about in a trauma patient who is potentially unstable is their end tidal CO2, their lactate level, and how they physically feel in terms of warmth. Now... Putting my hand on the patient's ankle made me think about these three things. So the next thing I did was grab an N CO2 and put it on the patient. And the end title CO2 was in the mid-20s. That's not very good. Now, not to make this too much of a clinical podcast, but I felt the guy's ankle wasn't very warm. I put on the end title CO2, and he's breathing fine. And his end titles in the mid-20s, and his SATs are in the low 90s, high 80s. Now, the first thing people would do with a SAT of low 90s to high 80s is give oxygen. But because of the small bits of information I was gaining at this point, I was thinking to myself, okay, two of the three things that make me worry about a trauma patient are present. He's not as warm as he should be, and his end title is on the low side. And the end title being low means cardiac output through the lungs isn't great, which answers why his pulse ox isn't very good. The other reason why his pulse ox isn't very good is because his carrying capacity is not there because he's bleeding out from the scalp that's still in the windshield. The next step that we had at that point, grab blood and start giving it to this guy. Fortunately, after longer than I'd like, it ended up working. His blood pressure got a little bit better. It actually stayed nearly the same, which the really interesting thing about that is because the guy's young, he's clamping down and holding his blood pressure. And as we gave more fluid, his vessels basically opened up. So he maintained the blood pressure. His oxygen saturation came up. Mostly, because he ended up having a bit of a pulmonary contusion going on. But all these numbers started getting better. I sat back after that case and realized, and really sat and soaked in the beauty of a case like that. And I'd love to say that every case after that happened that way. And it, But it didn't, right? Like it just doesn't, you know, you oscillate. Things happen for the better and for the worse and whatever. But it's all a process of building and building. And eventually you get to a steady state where you're implementing all these things on a regular basis. But the point is that instead of getting overwhelmed by the emotion, I forced myself to take an action. And that action gave me data. And once your brain starts to receive data, it can start thinking in a quantitative way. It can start thinking in an objective way and start to take more action. So what's the point of all this? The point of all of this is as corny as it sounds, and I know you hear words like this and your brain immediately shuts off, but you are in control. You are the change. You you have to be the change you seek to make, right? It's all tropey and it's all cliche and you hear it a million times, but the benefit of hearing it a million times is one of those million times you're going to hear it in the right context, at the right time, in the right place, at the time that you need to hear it, at the time where it can actually resonate with you, and then things start to make sense. Hopefully, this is that time for some of you. You're in control. And your actions will lead to your identity far more than your identity will lead to action. Taking the action will affect your emotion. The act of doing leads to ideas. The thought process, the emotion, emotions are just signals. These are all abstract. They will respond to the action that you take. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because of what I'm about to say. When you have a difficult patient, bring positivity to the bedside. When you have a difficult coworker or a difficult boss, change your posture. Respond to rudeness with kindness. I know it's nauseating to hear. But with the given, I'll give you another example. This actually just happened a couple of days ago. There's a patient who came in and I've seen him twice. Extremely, extremely volatile, extremely rude, uh, would make racist comments to every single person that walked by. He would be polite in one moment, but you say one thing that he doesn't like and he just fires every curse word at you. He was sitting on his bed, cursing out the cops next to him. He was doing all these things. And he was coming into the department for blood pressure medication and to have his blood pressure checked. And I know that's already making your skin crawl. And the icing on the cake's his blood pressure was stone cold normal. Now, the first time I'd seen this patient, he was asked to change into a gown, and he just tore the person to shreds, cursed them the heck out. I ain't changing it into no effing gown, eff you, this, blah, blah, whatever. I just turned to him and I said, take it easy, man. And he flipped out at me. Flipped out. We had to get security and take him out. He then came back a couple of days ago. And he was doing the same thing. So one of the residents went to go see him, talked to him very politely, and he was fine. And so... I wanted to try at that point. I said, let me just try. I wanted nothing to do with this patient. He was totally fine, totally stable, nothing going on with him. There was nothing alarming. I didn't want anything to do with this guy. But I decided, let me try something. Let me just try to enact what it is I'm telling you about. So I went up to him and I said to him, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I was just wondering, have you ever been to the medicine clinic that we have? Because if you go there and set up an appointment, You can probably, well, definitely, you can get your blood pressure medication given to you on a regular basis, and you won't have to bother coming into the ER all the time. And he was very grateful, and he was very kind and very thankful. So I gave him the information, sat down, and he continued to curse out security, and he cursed out the nurses, and blah, 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 blah. His behavior notwithstanding, whether he's got some psychiatric issues, or he's just generally a terrible person, whatever it might be, I felt good for two reasons in that moment. Number one, I brought the positivity to that space. And literally, when I got up, I didn't want anything to do with him. When I sat down, I felt so much better. My heart rate came down. My facial expressions became less tense. And the other thing is I felt really good about being inspired by my resident. Because the resident had very good bedside manner. And I internally was getting very agitated. And so I was motivated and inspired by the resident that I was with. And that was fantastic. And I told him that. I'm giving this example because I'm trying to drive home the point that it depends on what your goal is. And that's how you're going to feel about taking these actions. Because a lot of people, whether you think it directly or subconsciously, you know that this is true. When the opportunity comes for you to be kind in the face of rudeness or be patient in the face of whatever adversity, you know that that's a good idea, but you immediately default into the excuses of, yeah, but this is a different situation. I'm not at fault. This is I'm frustrated about this, 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 and that. And you give yourself every reason to justifiably be bitter or angry or frustrated. And that all goes back to what your end goal is, right? With this guy, my end goal was, I just, I want to do something that's going to make me feel good. And I know that this guy sometimes acts appropriately. And I know that if he flips out at me, I'm just going to walk away and just have security take him out. That's already how I feel. So I can't feel any worse by trying. So I went and I tried and it it made me feel better. And the remainder of my entire shift was better. When you feel a moment where you can get frustrated or you can get angry or you can start venting or you can feel justified in being equally rude to someone or bitter or cold or passive aggressive or anything, ask yourself what your end goal is. Is your end goal to try and achieve a self-satisfaction? Because if it is, then nothing that person's done or nothing around you is justifiable to influence the way you act in that moment. But knowing that if you act the way you want to feel, you will get to a point in that moment, even if it's for five minutes, where you feel better. And that goes back to the self credibility. It goes back to feeling a moment of clarity and then the clutter comes back. That's fine. That's normal. But then the next time you try it, you'll have remembered that, hey, for five minutes, I felt really good. And you try it again. Then it's going to become six minutes, then 10 minutes, then eight hours, then days and days. And the next thing you know, if you remember from the last podcast, the good choices you make aggregate and the more actions you take towards an identity that you want, you ultimately eventually will become that identity. Now, one final point. There's a difference between acting as if quote unquote and faking it till you make it. I am not a proponent of fake it till you make it because all of the experiences I've seen with faking it till you make it is pure arrogance. It's delusion really. And it's, The fake it till you make it falls also into the category of the knowledge you have. Pretending you know something when you actually don't. That falls counter to everything that I'm trying to implement in my life and everything that we're trying to teach within this community. Faking it till you make it, I feel, is a result of being afraid to be wrong. That's no good. But acting as if is taking an action with the tools you have, right? Because not knowing something is not having a tool seeking out the tool and gaining the tool is a different story. But with the tools you have acting, taking action in a way that falls in line with how you want to feel with the action you would take. If you felt the way you want to feel that's acting as if, I hope that makes some sense. But the key point here is if you're starting to grasp this, then understand everything I just said in this one statement, all of these actions have an internal effect. That internal effect will have external positive consequences. The way you act will cultivate the environment in your mind that is untouchable to everyone but yourself. We'll see you next time.